everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. We are very excited to be here today with Denisa Scott, and you can see our other staff, some of some of our staff members, uh, Lisa's on here, and myself, and Areeb was just on. He gets shy and he turns his camera off, but uh, we're going to wait just a little bit before we start recording, um, and uh, just to see if anybody else comes in, but start out and just say, Denisa, how's your day, and, and where are you at in the world today? Uh, gosh, I am actually in Northern Virginia and um, just feeling very privileged and honored to be here. Thank you. Well, I am in Northern Colorado. I wish. Lisa is probably in New Jersey. Habib's in Pakistan. And uh, anybody else? Mark is in Bangladesh, who also hasn't got his camera up. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're excited to. <laughs> Be able to chat with you. You have been on our board of advisors for some time now, and we appreciate that a lot. And uh, I don't know that we'll really talk about that a lot unless you would like to, but um, this is just going to be an interview format today. We're so privileged today to have Denisa Scott with us. Denisa is one of our board members uh, of our board of advisors for. Um, for the EAT community and for Economic Action Team. And she and I have interacted uh, at least once before in that capacity, and she's actually been really great and answered a bunch of questions that we raise every quarter through our, through our board process. And she's got a really interesting career herself that we're going to just chat about today. So this is just going to be an interview format. Um, there's no pl planned presentation. We're going to go back and forth between Mark showing her website and some other things that, that are related to her, and then just having us all be on the screen and and uh, and showing it that way. So if you've got questions, you guys know that on the right-hand side of your screen, you can, um, you can put them in. We would really love to have them. Um, we'll stay plenty busy asking her questions ourselves, but we'd really rather have yours. So... Put them in there, put them in the little box that says questions, or raise your hand, Mark will see it, and then he'll acknowledge you, and you can come on and ask them live if you'd like. So anyway, that's a little bit of our introduction. And um, let's just start with a real broad question, hopefully a simple one. Just tell us a little bit about your professional life, your sort of history and what you've done in ISO. Oh, okay. Excuse me. Your uh, your organization was really interesting to me because I have always been a tree hugger at heart and started out as a career tree hugger. I was doing um, environmental sustainability studies, think on the order of, say, the Amazon rainforest, looking at environmental sustainability in the context of economic development. And, uh, you know, rather than cut all the trees down, what can we do to create a, a um, uh, and a viable economy that 
also supports biodiversity <coughs> and uh, conservation. And I got a call one day from my advisor from grad school, and she basically said, well, ecosystems, space systems, what do you care? Well, you can work for me. I thought that was really interesting. And um, so I went uh, to work for an aerospace-based contractor and have been supporting um, <clears throat> excuse me, space-based programs uh, ever since, mostly from the perspective that, you know, if, if we can understand what's going on on the surface of the planet, we can better adjust our meta behaviors to um, support a viable, sustainable Earth. And uh, so I've done that for 25 years, working it with various um, constellations and whatnot. And I have, I, it's it's all well and good and a lot of fun. And um, as I get a little older and wiser, you, you as you understand much better than I, it's it's really ultimately about the people. And so engaging in a community like this, engaging on programs, sharing our ideas, sharing what works and what doesn't, and understanding that there's a a balance, I think, between the, you know, live simply so that others may simply live uh, philosophy. <clears throat> excuse me, I have a, <clears throat> excuse me, that's uh, Northern Virginia in the that happens. summer, you end up with a few tadpoles in your throat. Um, so there's there's a balance between the philosophy of live simply so that others may simply live and let's use high tech to solve the major environmental problems of the planet and to gain better insight. Um, so I'm just trying to explore uh, as much of that uh, humanocracy as possible right now. With Advisory Cloud, um, which is where we met for the board circumstance you're on, are you on any other boards? Um, and if so, what what are the generalities of those companies and how have you um, helped them work? Well, I'm on two other, the boards of two other corporations uh, that are, um, one is specific to uh, blockchain uh, technologies and one is a space company. So. Uh, Again, it's uh, I find the nexus between human interaction and human solutions to human and environmental problems and technology and how we can leverage it to best um, address the really pressing problems uh, as as just sort of a sweet spot where I'm just trying to explore and uh, really enjoying listening to, uh, especially with your guests, what what are they dedicating their lives to? How are they trying to make a difference in you know sustainable agriculture and uh, beekeeping and all these other wonderful topics that you've been able to to feature? Awesome. By the way, everybody can see it's lunchtime here in Colorado early, and it's later in the East Coast. And so we're we're enjoying talking. Well, in my case, I'm munching on a little sandwich and drinking a little, little uh, juice as we go. And we'd like you to get comfortable. Um, again, please ask questions as we go along. 
because of the interview format, if they're relevant, Mark, would you make sure you look for them? I am really intrigued for a different reason than you might think about your career and what you do, because I, you'd have to look a little more into my history, but my dad was an aerospace engineer. Um, he came out of World War II uh, as a pilot in the Army Air Corps, and, and instead of staying in, which, which many times I know he regretted, he wished he would have stayed in, but he didn't. Anyway, he went to work right out of the military with North American. North American was acquired by Rockwell, and ultimately Rockwell was acquired by Boeing during his career. So he was in Wichita, Kansas at that time, and very, very soon after he, he got hired, um, they moved him and transferred him to Lancaster Palmdale Edwards Air Force Base. So mm -hmm. he started being a uh, test pilot um, at the same time that Chuck Yeager did, at the same time as Neil Armstrong did, at the same time as um, these are all guys that are friends of his. And yeah, I was fortunate in that Neil Armstrong lived right behind us, literally in the house that backed up to ours. Yes. Chuck Yeager lived down the street. Um, my dad, if, if he would have been a Vietnam veteran, they would have they would have diagnosed him with PTSD because right. he was he just wasn't the same guy. I'm told I, I was born after that, but but my mother said he just went inside. Well, Yeager and and Armstrong were just the opposite. Those two guys could talk your ear off. They would be outgoing. So when my dad got with them. He was able to be, you know, really much more of himself. And I would sort of hide behind things and listen to my dad talking with those two guys and others. And that really was the real him, not necessarily uh -huh. the one I saw all the time. But, but anyway, he um, he flew for the rest of his career until he retired from the flying side, F-105s, F-1s, F-100s, you name it, in test flights. Uh, Leading up to the end of his career, working uh, on the, the, the second stage of the, stat, the Saturn before going back to um, the, the airplane side and working on the B-1 as they were getting the B-1 developed. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember, but we tried to uh, develop a plane called the B-70 that was going to replace the B-52 that mm -hmm. North America built. He only built three of them, and Dad was flying in an F-105 doing observation when the, one of the three crashed, and uh, it hit the F-105 that was on the other side because of the prop or wash and air wash. Anyway, the, the two of them went, both went down, and uh, that day I was in school, I think in seventh grade, and I got called to the principal's office, and my mom was there crying and they had just we had only thing we'd heard is there was a crash and my dad was one of the pilots that was out that day mm -hmm. and we literally waited until he walked in the door that evening before we knew he was alive still so wow. communication wasn't quite then what it is today but i grew up in the aerospace industry and Probably because of that, decided I didn't want to go in it myself, even though a whole bunch of my friends. My dad worked, you know, 80, 100-hour weeks. Right, yes. 
Joey's whole career. The yeah. interesting thing about those um, experimental planes is there was so much of the uh, so much development of the early um, uh, electro-optical um, observation platforms that have really uh, turned out to be quite instrumental. I mean, right now we're getting, uh, I think I saw a news article, a news story just this morning about how satellite imagery, commercial satellite Im imagery is um, showing the canals in the Ukraine drying up as a result of the dam that was breached. And um, so often we can see using this very high altitude or space-based uh, imagery, the impact of very anthropogenic activities, and it really, I think, adds a lot of uh, adds a lot of gravitas to claims of being in the Anthropocene era and all the things that a lot of people will deny and say, well, you know, we've had variations in climate over the eons and it's, it's, it can't be humans because we probably have about the impact of ants, except for the fact that now human-made materials and buildings and other stuff now outweighs the entire biomass of all of the other living org organisms on the planet. So, you know, um, take that as you will. I tend to think it lends some, some credence to the case of, of uh, the Anthropocene era being upon us. Tell us about one thing you're interested in that, that's exciting to me, which is space mining. And, and I, I asked Mark yesterday and Areeb to make sure I was getting it right, as then I did some more research, but that that truly means <laughs> mining, maybe on an asteroid or on another planet. It doesn't mean like Bitcoin mining or it's no. using computers. It's truly mining. So tell us about what your interests are there. Where are we at in, in terms of maybe getting there to being able to be doing that? Where, how I far off is that? I think that the very first, again, this is going to be according to um, the news headlines, I think I saw it on spacenews.com or something like that yesterday, that um, NASA has approved the very first commercial mission, U.S.-based commercial mission, to a near-Earth object called Psyche. I think it's Psyche 17, Psyche, whatever. But it's, it's, it's a near-Earth object, an, an asteroid, that by conservative estimates has something on the order of 10 quintillion or 10 quadrillion i'm going to have to look that up uh dollars worth of rare earths and other mineable materials in it that is that is enough to cut a check to every single human on the planet for a billion dollars and still have plenty left over so one of the things that I have long since said is that the very first state or non-state entity, corporation, whatever, that reaches and successfully mines a near-Earth object, an asteroid, will be the next and last 
superpower on the planet because you're talking one rock in space having the mineable value of multiple times over the entire planet's GDP. So and just so people can get a context, one element that I at least heard about that would be very valuable on any of these would be lithium, because lithium is so really unavailable in mm -hmm. mineable quantities here on here on Earth. Um, just so you, is that right? I mean, that is and one of them. Yes, in any of the rare earths. Now, I'm I'm sure you've seen. Uh, also, articles on on um, the media about you know China and other countries, mostly China, trying to corner the market for rare earth metals, rare, rare earth elements, um, and how important the rare earths are in all the electronics that we depend on, whether it's your GPS, your cell phone, your smartwatch, your kid's iPad, um, all of those electronics that we take for granted and Literally, they're just throwaway items now, pretty much. They're disposable. You have a tablet for 18 months and it's considered ancient and you just toss it. Well, that's all well and good, except for the fact that inside each of those individual electronics is a plethora of rare earth that make all, make all this go, make all these electrons move from point A to point B very rapidly and be able to, you know, receive satellite signals in a, a, a form factor that's, you know, the size of your hand or a deck of cards or even right. the size of a watch. And, and deconstructing those disposable electronics, and I call them disposable because the people throw them away as commonly as, as, as plastic bottles now just about. Deconstructing that is extremely difficult, extremely hazardous. There's high toxicity in the process. Usually it happens in in undeveloped underdeveloped countries that uh, and it's being done by people with no safety training whatsoever and they suffer high exposure to very toxic materials and you know their incidence of you know, cancers and other diseases that are, that are entirely preventable is just insane. And we are consuming these rare earths at at unprecedented levels at this point, uh, to the point that now there's even companies that are trying to mine the deep sea floor for rare earth metal, rare earth elements. And so the, the idea of being able to mine uh what we perceive as just lifeless rocks in space is very intriguing to people and it's also well, go, ahead. go ahead oh well, let's just take an asteroid let's take the one you described mm -hmm. how because i just think people we all have in mind the planets we all have we know the sun's distance the moon distance how about how far away relative to one of the other planets would an asteroid that you could get to in mind be? Well, from a from a time to travel perspective, it would be a matter of months. Um, okay. So, 
and these are also the same rocks in space that people, you know, that, that you see all these movies about space cowboys, whatever, you know, what would happen if the giant asteroid hit, hit Earth and, you know, life would be over as we know it sort of thing. So, but they, their, their orbits will, the perigee to Earth is periodic and then they go way off into deep space again and then they come back and they go out. So it's um, there are specific windows where it's more or less efficient or more or less viable to consider uh, approaching these things. But you know the Japanese Japanese have already uh, brought back samples from an asteroid, and and the comparative estimates are very favorable to these um, you know ten quadrillion dollars worth of raw materials estimates that we're getting off of some of these various rocks and it's really interesting except aren't aren't we there technologically i mean what would we have to have to be able to do this it's truly some an approval process and coupled with financial right i mean we don't we don't need to improve technology probably in any way do we to well, there's always improvements that are needed, and one of them is, you know, when you when you get to these distances, the very fact of um, just the physics of how fast and far radio waves travel for communication, command and control of a of an autonomous vehicle traveling to a an asteroid to mine it, you know, you're you, that's where I'm guessing that the AI comes in um, because you're not going, that vehicle's not going to be able to wait, you know, eight plus hours or three days to get instructions if it runs into trouble. So there, it's literally going to have to make its own decisions. On top of that, if you can imagine a space tug that's got, you know, that's just got a fresh load of material off of a space rock and it's headed back towards Earth to orbit and sync up with some commercial space station to have its payload taken off to be processed, whatever. And that payload is worth, the payload alone could be worth, you know, $100 billion. Now I'm. This is all a total swag, so don't quote me on this. But to think that, you know, if you look at the ultimate value of that anyone's pinned on a rock, and then say somebody comes and takes a big scoopful and goes back to a space station to process the that material. So you've got your giant um, coal car, only it's not car coal it's got molyb- molybdenum and 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 uh titanium and lithium and you know all of these materials that are crucial for electronics production and all the things that make modern life possible for us today well it's going to be worse than the gold rush of 49 when it comes to the bandits and the everything that want to go steal that right so then you can think of, you know, potentially, you know, other kinds of spacecraft that are rogue spacecraft coming and 
and bumping off the um, whatever vehicle is towing that giant space barge full of materials and stealing it. Um, so that's that's something that um, people come and you know ask me about quite a bit in the and and uh, commercial industry is going to have to start thinking about that and what happens you're not you're too far away from home and say you know hey mother may i do i is it fight or flight well if you fight you might be starting a world war if you try to flee well where are you going to flee to um that the bandits on their space horses the sp can't chase you down and go ahead and steal your load anyway so it's a fascinating problem and there's a lot of their space law and policy and and commercial precedent and all sorts of things to be considered where where are uh, countries of the world in, in relative order this is this is asking for denise's opinion and if you have any references this would be great but you don't need to where are they at in terms of their relative order of sophistication? I would bet that X number of years ago, that was a very easy question. It would be US, Russia, China, maybe. I wouldn't even have put Japan in the mix, but but I don't understand Japan. So where is there is it sort of even in the space race today? between different countries? Is there somebody that's way ahead? Is, are the Chinese like way out there ahead? And maybe we don't know these things. Maybe this is the thing that whoever our governments are keeps these things quiet too. Interestingly enough, I don't think it, I don't think focusing on, you know, the various uh, countries that have already achieved space flight is, is so much what's fascinating as the commercial for the progress the commercial companies out there sure. that are doing what used to be strictly the realm of governments right. and have the right. space fixes and and you know right. blue origins you have these the companies of the world but there's not just three or four of them there's literally scores of them now um that well, are but, i mean obviously there are they are even the, the just the two you mentioned, I think if you were in China, you would you would call both those companies non-Chinese. Okay, SpaceX would be considered a U.S.-based company. Blue Origins is what maybe maybe U.K. I don't even know if 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 he is U.K. really what he associates with, but but because I I wish we could take and say that we have this global peace and that everybody's gonna that companies are gonna get you know but i don't think we have that and you know there was a space race while i was growing up clearly we were in competition with the russians maybe now the space race is commercial and that you think it is you know, that Musk is in competition with with uh you know all the others that are out there i really do think it's it's a commercial and that's you know that's the beauty of it why did NASA exist in the first place? To subsidize this technology area and the industry itself until it could become a viable commercial industry in and of itself. And it's almost succeeded that, if not actually. I mean, really, 
the space industry uh, is yeah. a viable independent commercially driven industry now whereas even 15 years ago it wasn't yet and what, what, what is one or two if you have any success stories of really young companies that maybe that nobody on here will have ever heard of maybe but that um, that are making it and what is it in today's world that would typically allow that to happen investors mental power you know or is it a combination of both well uh, it, it really think? seems to be uh driven by a visionary entrepreneur i mean you've got you've got um and of course i've never been good with you know proper nouns so you're putting me on the spot to say name name a company um you've got you know that that there are so many commercial satellite companies out there that are providing sensor data um that we never would have imagined um you can buy almost anything that used to be the exclusive purview of of governments you got uh imagery that has you know that's just got exquisite um a very very exquisite resolution and you know you can just go right what is it global um oh shoot what did they become i have to look it up anyway you've got these wonderful companies that that are providing imagery that are providing even you know space-based you know other kinds of sensors you know whether it's whether it's um in other in other parts of the visual spectrum or if it's you know radar or various kinds of communications you've got your starlinks of the world um, that have just gotten out there. The, the interesting thing is now it's not so much a question of can we get up there, but now the, the, the problem is space traffic management. And the big push now is to create, just like there's the air traffic control, now the governments and commercial companies are having to come together to create a space traffic control. And um, you know which U.S. agency is going to be the lead on that? How are we going to interact with all of the other space-enabled countries in the world? I mean, and what is it doing to our night sky? Can you do the the dark skies concept anymore? You can't even look up in the sky with a with a, a telescope now and have a clear view there are so many mega constellations up there in low earth orbit and not to mention you know mio or heo and what that's leading to of course is the 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 space debris problem and uh there are a lot of companies working in the space working in in resolving space debris and i myself have a a uh, proposal going into the National Science Foundation to deal with uh, space debris, hopefully, you know, orbit 
a um, space debris mitigation technology. The interesting thing there is that the commercial companies that are out there still think that space debris is everyone's problem, therefore it must be government, the government's problem. The government needs to solve this problem for us, is what you're hearing in, in, in industry. Um, you can have clouds of debris that are anything from the size of a grain of sand, and there's hundreds and thousands, if not millions of pieces of this up there, putting all of these satellites at risk. But any one satellite, it's sort of the amortization of risk, and they spread it around. Any one satellite is not very likely to get taken out, but every now and then you'll have something that gets taken out that's a you know multi-million dollar commercial satellite and then everybody gets up in arms again uh so just like any emergent industry these issues sort of do the do the two steps forward one step back progression in until it matures into established policy, established space law, established um, uh, diplomatic ties, and you know what to do in space if the bad thing happens and a French satellite takes out, you know, a I don't know, a, a Russian satellite, what, what happens when it was just an accident? Well, if they're both commercial companies, who pays for it? What does Lloyd's of London do? Um, there's so many questions that have yet to be answered. And how, much, how much space activity do you think goes on that the public has no knowledge of? In, and that's very intentional. Either intentional on the part of the corporations, the, the businesses that are involved, or on the governments? Is it very, is it is it a lot? Is it just not much because of the visibility of everything has today? My gut would tell me it's a lot. My gut would tell me we don't know about, we as the public don't have a clue about what at all is going on. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's hobbyists that the only thing that they do is sit around, they sit up late at night out in a field with their telescope and and say oh gosh yeah. i haven't seen that one before that's there's a thing going over that you know isn't cataloged i mean there's whole catalogs of of um of space satellites and and whatnot and i'm going to get you um the website oh yeah the spacetrack.org um, is is a really good. It's a, it's a completely. Mark, would you do me a favor and pull spacetrack.org up and take our pictures and put them in smaller? By the way, I'm going to interrupt real quick. We got audience out there that are being really quiet and not asking questions. I know that I have multiple staff members that are going to ask you a bunch of questions tonight. So that I know Lisa's got some. I know that that Aaron's got some. I know that Mark and Reed. But I really want our audience to. So. Audience, please, this is an amazing topic and it's very economic. So please, if you would, raise your hand and ask some questions. Um, and by the way, Denisa and I could probably talk for days and we'd never run out of things to talk I'm about. I'm sure we could. Um, 
back to again sort of what's going on today if i was a an 18 year old wanting to go into the space industry what would be my best approach to do that and let me give you what i mean by that is are there some colleges that are way ahead of others that i might want to try to get into colleges or universities are there internship programs that I would maybe want to try to get into if I could. Um, let's say I had no, my parents don't work in the space industry. I don't have any real connections. Right. What, what, what would, what are some things I could do to really enhance my ability to, to, uh, to have a career? And then what would I want to take as a major? That's, that's a, you know, what would well, be the that's best? Kind of too, because Wayne, I'm a biologist by training. I did my, my, undergraduate degree in pre-veterinary medicine with a minor in genetics uh you know so asking me that question is kind of funny <laughs> because really it was doing you know straight up tree hugger work um now i i suppose i was a little bit of, a, of an anomaly uh, but the stem subjects um and and there's always going to be a place for specialists. There's always going to be a place for generals, generalists. There's also this intersection where the translational technology um, topics where, you know, how does, how does microbiology meet space? Well, they're trying to grow lettuce in space, and there's a lot of intricacies for that. Um, so, if you know, if you are a biologist, you or an a, a true agrarian at heart, there's still a place for you because I'm like a lot of people. I believe that probably our best chances, one of our best chances for survival is to get off planet. Um, so, and I'm a child of the Star Trek era, uh, I'll own that. Um, but I really do believe that we are fundamentally explorers we are as as humans we are um, creatures that must go out and explore and seek out strange new worlds and and all that stuff and and yes this this planet is amazing and beautiful and possible well it by definition is unique but it's possibly not unique to the capacity of supporting life forms as we know it but we're just now starting to understand that there are so many different uh recombinants of conditions that could support life forms as we don't know it um but he even here on this planet there are extremophiles that survive and thrive in you know super deep ocean vents that are uh super saturated with sulfur or you know some other uh some chemical that is volcanic in nature and it's only been within the last several decades that people have realized that there are you know prokaryotes eukaryotes various bacteria prions we don't eat we have no idea what the ecosystem of prions is because we can't even define it yet other than it's a haploid strand of dna that's self-replicating um so we really don't have a clue as to the 
spectrum of life as it is possible across the universe, much less whether it would be sentient or something we could communicate with. Um, I'm thinking of the Orson Scott card, you know, series Ender's Game. Um, and and actually grok that each the other is sentient and self-aware and has something to communicate and interests to protect and there might you know it's i don't know whether if there were aliens would they be friendly or not you know that's a that's an ongoing question but what i do know is that unless we continue to explore and find ways to do it sustain you know in a way that's sustainable for this planet you know we've got a we're at a at a tipping point or uh, that we could either take the biotic potential of this planet out as we take ourselves out or we could rise above the the very primitive fight or flight instincts that everything down to the tiniest single-celled organism has uh, we could rise above it and become, uh, you know, truly more humane humans, and and uh, aspire to space. Zach is out in the audience and has a great question, but I'm going to ask him for a little clarification because I'm seeing it and I'm going to ask it directly. But then Zach, I might ask you to clarify a little bit. So he says, "Hi, I am a soil microscopist and a worm farmer in New Jersey." Are there any, and here's the question, are there any concerns looking at soil microbiology in terms of its significance in space? And then he says the moon, asteroids, or Mars. As I hear that, I'm not quite getting what you might be asking. So maybe Denisa did, but maybe clarify that a little bit. So I, because I don't know what you mean about concerns, Zach, meaning are the concerns that this that space is affecting our worm technology, our worms, or is there something we can go up into space and do? I don't know, but maybe you've got some thoughts, Denisa, before uh, Zach starts to think of maybe how to clarify his question. Well, there's been a lot of study already into you know how how could we farm on the moon? Is the soil that we find is the substrate right. that we find on the surface of the moon something that could support agriculture and and the short answer is mm, we don't know um there's also the concern of you know are there could there be microbes in uh subsurf in the subsurface uh structures geological structures of any given planet that we might disrupt or potentially annihilate if we tried to introduce earth origin soil constituents or tried to farm because it's it's impossible to produce any kind of agro agricultural product in a sterile in a truly sterile environment um something's got to be able to grow he clarified so, his question, by the way, and okay. I think it's he's he's actually wanting to know: Are there companies out there that are that are interested in this, so that it isn't just to, you know companies that want to occupy the moon and come up with whatever minerals there might be or an asteroid? 
Um, are there companies that you know of, at least, that, that are actually doing um, some movement, research, whatever, to see about um, the, the, uh, the worms in space you know, and, and how that might affect what we do, what we have here on the Earth? Um, well, I don't have a compre comprehensive knowledge of all of the commercial space companies out there and what they're doing. Um, and uh, but but I do know, like, for instance, uh, you know, Elon Musk with his push to Mars sort of thing. There's There's been a lot. He's put a lot of money into figuring out how we would farm fresh food on Mars. Um, okay. there, I'm, I'm sure a simple, simple Google search would uh, reveal a number of the names of a number of companies that are probably uh, pushing initiatives in, in, in space agriculture. And, um, you know, right now the focus is on hydroponics or a gel-based hydroponic growth um, medium for human comestibles, but in there's been you know the idea of terraforming Mars has been a, that's been around God since I was a little kid, um, and basically how much, how much food is grown in the state in the space station? Any any kind of a, a a place where humans are living up in space? Are they are they doing aquaponics or hydroponics or not probably not aquaponics but any growth of food up there, or is it all brought to them? I I did read something about um, the the resident uh, astronauts having tasted lettuce that was grown um, in a gel-based hydroponic um, experimental cell, but this is all still experimental. It's not sustainable. Um, you know, it requires decades of research to understand, you know, what are the genetic changes to the base plant itself uh, when it's grown in space? Does it change it somehow so that the metabolites would not be compatible with um, human, the human digestive process? Would it, you know, is there something that could go wrong that could, you know, poison humans if they ate lettuce that was grown in space versus lettuce or spinach that was grown on the ground? Or it, does it become a superfood? Or what are the benefits of, of growing in space versus growing on the ground? And um, so I do know that, that there are astronauts who lettuce that has been grown in space, but it was pretty much a publicity stunt. Um, but what are some what are some biological kinds of things that you personally if you could if you could look ahead 10 years into your life and and if you had a chance to do whatever you might want um career-wise moving ahead are there some specific biological kinds of things you'd be interested in exploring as it relates to space That's a tough one, I know. I apologize, but that's it is a really tough one, and I'm 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 gonna deflect you a little bit and just say that there are there are companies uh that are looking not just to manufacture um living facilities and goods in space for space use, okay. 
Got but it. there are also companies that are looking to create pharmaceuticals in space that could not be created on the earth that would have medicinal value that could be a game changer for various um ailments give me, and give me an example of that that's a real that's a one that is something okay well give me two seconds i'm going to look that one up uh for the specifics because um you know being on a being on a on a live stream and and getting put on the spot oh, that sort of thing no, I, again it's more um and maybe the reasons why in other words would it be lack of gravity would there be things that 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 would be able to be better i mean what would be the reasons that doing something like a pharmaceutical development in space could be something you wouldn't be able to do here on Earth? right so um actually even so i'm uh, looking at an article out of the scientist magazine uh from back in 2020 it says you know um major major pharma companies um since have have for a number of years there's a company quoted here lambda vision that had based had been spent years developing a protein-based artificial retina um that uh went up to the iss with the proteins that could make that retina um and i expect that the value of having that uh, those grow in space would be you'd have a more uniform distribution and and um, come up with a with a more viable shape than you might get on the ground where there's where there's gravity. Um, you've got Eli Lilly, Merck, Astra, AstraZeneca, you know, dozens of companies that have all sent. So the, the big the big companies. They're doing it, so they they've got thought. Because I they guess are. I could see, in certain circumstances, you could have incredibly clean air that you wouldn't be able to create here on Earth. But you couldn't even think about filtering, so you couldn't do the the, the best HEPA filters uh, available. You mm -hmm. couldn't get get the air quality good enough that it would approach what it could be in a space environment. I, I could see that that that, that would be. Sorry when, to cut you cut you guys in but i'd also want to show this trailer here which we have for the nisa i have already like this will this will be a youtube channel which the nisa will be launching yeah so we have like 10 15 minutes left so i wanted to bring this in first <laughs> so oh, we can go, talk for about it. It. go for it Areeb, and then we'll we'll go from there okay yes. here you go he's gonna play the video go ahead Areeb. There's no sound to it. Yeah, Arib, we need to get sound. Arib. Find it back there. Uh, he's, he's actually highlighting, I, I've, I've got a YouTube channel that's going to, it's not public yet. I'm going to make it live on the um, 3rd of July. Ah, and okay. This is more, no, so he's giving, he's giving a preview of it. We're getting a preview of it. So this is, sound, this is the trailer, and it it's called Over the Hill and Into the Wild because you know I am a little older now, um, but I did spend the first major chunk of my life living and working in the wilderness. Um, so 
instead of uh, continuing to uh, promote my career in space, I, I kind of decided that I wanted to branch out a little bit and uh, explore the more human side of of people and their experiences with the Earth and their impact to environmental topics that matter and how being in the great outdoors has impacted their lives and and just sharing basically the 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 wisdom and and knowledge of pardon my french but other kick-ass women that are a little bit older and so that's my youtube channel he was going to try and show you is called over the hill and into the wild so i will be branching out more in my career but not further into space instead going back into well, let, let's stay on that one now let's move there now we're getting an area that i have some experience in and, and yes i'm it from both the gray hair which means over the hill side but yeah. i've spent my whole life being out in the wild in one way or uh -huh. another and that's probably what i you know it's where i feel the most comfortable um what what is the way that this entity will generate some kind of revenue just so that it becomes economic right so you can stay stay afloat Honestly, will you be doing tours will you have courses I and mean, what is it that it'll be I, I may be able to add some courses and that sort of thing but this this little youtube channel is is a is a, kind of a, a hobby project of mine because i have spent you know so many years working in high tech so many work years working in the aerospace industry trying to impact things that will make the earth better. But I spent, I mean, I was a mounted ranger with the US Forest Service. I was, I did deep winter technical mountain search and rescue. I was a firefighter. I did a lot of ranch work. I did a lot of, of, of dude work. You know, I did a lot of, um, which is basically taking dudes out on horseback rides into the wilderness. Um, I did a lot of, I worked as a as a uh, the senior naturalist on a 3,000 acre African wildlife reserve in Central Texas for some time, and so I've got you know I've got the bona fides that I really have and can go out into the wild and and live and survive. But I also want to focus on on women's stories and and the the beauty and wisdom that they've acquired over the years it's not you know worse for the wear it's wiser for the wear and going out into the wilderness kind of bear bear grill style only without the hollywood stunts and just commuting with nature and talking about their lives and experiences and most of my guests to date um and you'll see as i as i publish the episodes uh have a very um economics based interest you know i i um there's one of my guests was a uh is one of the owners of artera winery and uh we talk a lot about how they are using sustainable practices to grow their grapes and still be symbiotic with the local native environment and promoting its health and also creating a viable business model where they have some really really amazing wines and and that sort of thing there's another woman who want, who runs a, a horse rescue and it's on a on a farm that where they're working to create a very 
um, a very eco-friendly environment uh, while they are supporting all of these um, rescue animals and that sort of thing. So, so I have sort of branched out a little bit from space and and uh, well, I guess I'm I'm putting putting more earthbound roots down rather than branching up to space. Right What's now. your observation of women? that you would put into that category. So I'm not gonna put an age on it or whatever. I'll let you think of, you know, whatever that might be. About how as they as as women age, they become would they become more sedentary than men might as they age? I can make observations about men because one, I am one. Most of my really close friends that that are my age or even a little younger, certainly older, have become way too sedentary in their older age. And I'm talking about ones that at some point were very active out in the outdoors or whatever. But just, I mean, it's it's scary to me how how little that that a bunch of my friends do anything other than sit and watch TV. Right. So Wayne, so this is this is part of the this is part of the idea is you know a lot of people may not have the confidence that they can get out there and do these things because they don't know how to hike in the woods or they don't know which end of a backpack is up or whatever. But I'm really trying to encourage people and women primarily, but anyone just to get out there and enjoy the outdoors because the more you have a connection with nature and the more you have a connection with the with wilderness the more it comes home to roost how important it is to live a a life that's gentle on the earth and uh so somebody's activity level now shouldn't determine whether or not they're even willing to get out and try and and in whatever capacity they can whether it's sitting in a canoe just you know paddling gently down a river or getting out gosh I've had a my hand still healing from a BMX bike accident a few couple of months ago so what are you doing riding a BMX bike? Do you have kid, you know, grandkids or kids or whatever that are BMX racers? I have a young son. I very young son. He's just going into third grade. So <laughs> would, would you, you you should recommend a movie for him, by the way. Very old school. It's called Rad. So R-A-D. And it was probably made in the 80s. And I'm sure it would be available, you know, some streaming things, Netflix, whatever. I know the guy who starred in that, the guy that was, the, the, because my son raced BMX for his time, and my son's 47 now. So he started when he was four and raced through 15 or so, 12, 13. He moved in from BMX to mountain bikes and then mountain bikes to road bikes. But but very serious. We went all over the country to BMX races. And this guy who made this movie rad, and it's not a it's not the best cinematography type of movie, but it's all about BMX. I, I guarantee you, your son and you would love it. So it's called Rad. And I can't remember whether it's R-A-D-D. -D. Seems like it is, or just R-A-D, but there won't be 
more than one movie about BMX that's called rad. But just I'll look, look it up. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, so what? What? Uh, end of our time. Does he race or does he just do mess around with it? Oh no, we're 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 just getting our feet wet. We're just getting our feet wet. So. And does he like doing tricks more or going fast and going over bumps and jumping and whatever? He likes both. Uh, He's been a little speed demon, so but he really likes the tricks. He he thinks that's just cool. There you go. Very good. Um, I have some old videos. Sometime I'll dust off of my son racing when he was at that age. Somehow put him out there, share him, whatever. On your website, going back to the the YouTube site. Um, Make sure we stay in touch, and we'll make sure to advertise once you've got it. So July 3rd, you're talking about? July can... 3rd, I have to go public with Over the Hill and Into the Wild. Okay. And here's here it is, everybody. Well, thank so, you. So, but can people can people subscribe now? I think they probably can. You can I just did. Yeah. I think okay. so. Yes. Yeah. I just did, and you need to click on this bell icon too, so you'll get all the notifications. See, I'm still learning about all of that. I just decided I really wanted to get out and talk to really wonderful women, and this was a great place to put it to share for all the world to see. So I'm still learning about all of that. And it's we did just pass the top of the hour, and, okay. and we try to be respectful of both you and our speakers, but then our, our guests. But let me just do this. We're going to stay on a little bit longer here. Um, Zach, Zach had a funny one after his, his two questions, but he said, if there's no plants, I'm assuming, this is plants out in space, I'm assuming there's no soil food web. And then he goes, ha, 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 um, which probably true. There's, uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, um, any other questions? Everybody, staff, you guys didn't ask anything. Areeb did, did, he made a comment. Uh, Lisa, um, Aaron, Mark, Areeb, guys, throw something out there. Yeah, I have a question about the uh, James Webb telescope because I think the um, exploration of deep space is highly um, impacted or enhanced once we have a telescope um, that, like, millions of miles away. I think how many? Uh, can you tell us something about that? Well, I I've not been involved with the James Webb telescope. Uh, project. I've, I've followed it like so many other people have. What's fascinating is that it's um, so much more powerful than the Hubble and we're being able to see, and, and this is a hard concept to grok for some people, but see that much further back in time and look at the evolution of the universe and understand more about how planets and galaxies, et cetera, came into being. And from that perspective, I think it gives us an opportunity to become much more open and sensitive to the possibilities, the world, the, the possibility of what might be out there that we haven't even conceived of yet. And potentially finding planets that are very similar to the earth in its composition and you know they talk about the goldilocks zone you know having a planet be so far away from its sun that it orbits that it would be within the temperature ranges that support life as we know it potentially support human life 
because we have very, very small tolerances of temperature and, and uh, atmospheric makeup and all sorts of things. Um, so it's, it's, it's really exciting to think that we could, we could examine hundreds of thousands of more potential star systems and the planets that are within them very rapidly. And as AI evolves, we can potentially train AIs to be looking for the things that it's very hard when you're a human, you've got about 45 good minutes in you at any given time of, of serious focused attention on, on some kind of observation task. So no matter how interested you are as a, as an astronomer or, you know, uh, planetary observer, you're just going to fatigue. It's just part of the human neurology. You just, you fatigue. And so when you have, you know, AIs that can look at certain characteristics and do compare and contrast between what they've observed to, uh, what we know supports life, we have a lot better chance of finding, you know, star systems and planets that could support human-like life. And that's is, just- Is that the most powerful telescope in the world today? The James Webbers or others that are up? To my knowledge, that's the most powerful deep space telescope there. Are, and there are no telescopes on the, Earth's surface that could surpass it simply because there's atmospheric so pollution limited yeah. to you know where the earth goes and where the earth turns right, Whereas, right. you know, um, you know. another question from our audience actually from a couple different people but um, this is one which is that space radiation can be intense how will people handle it well, we've already seen that, you know, people can't. We have to have protection. We have to have artificial structures that will protect our bodies, our brains, and the food we eat from space radiation. If, if it weren't for the atmosphere we have, if something ripped the atmosphere off this planet, um, not only would we asphyxiate, but we'd also die most gauche of uh, radiation poisoning. Um, I mean, so again, humans are incredibly fragile and our best bet is to be able to leverage the orbital technologies in manufacturing to create livable artificial environments, I think. That makes sense. Again, staff or audience, because there's great questions here. Anything else from any of you guys? Denisa, yes, I have my last one here and we'll wait. Will you come on again? Yep. And and relatively soon even, because I think there's just so much more that, that we can we can promote and then talk about. You know, I'm talking you know, three months from now, six months or something. So I, not I, year, not years off. Okay. Right, I'd love to. That, that would be absolutely lovely. And well, after, after your YouTube channel that's going here. Uh-huh. 
I'll probably right, hit you. Any other questions my... from the audience? We are going on over time. Okay. Yep. This is Lisa. No, no questions. Oh. But I think this has been a really interesting conversation. Denisa, you've given us lots of food for thought. I have a new perspective on space exploration and how it can benefit the uh, the uh, the ecology and how we look at ourselves as humans. I'm going to turn my camera on because I'm speaking a little bit more than I was expecting to. So I just really appreciate your thoughtfulness and your concepts and, and the connections and how you've connected a lot of dots and opened my eyes to concepts that are new to me. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Lisa. I, I think that Lisa's perspective there is probably held by many. That's, I don't think most of the things you talked about, Denisa, sort of the average, even well aware, the colonomic human would have knowledge of it. Really wouldn't. I mean, I don't think they think about space uh, as how it might be impacting so much of what we do on the earth in the way you discussed it. So that was really useful. Well, there's just such a broad spectrum of opportunities and impacts. So it just never hurts to explore. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate your perspective of how how if we can take this information and how can we make us better humans. You know, how can we make our humanity more human? So, and I think a read that really that really resonated with me. Read. Yeah. So no questions here, but I really want to mention one thing. Whenever your YouTube channel is there and it's launched, please send me one email. We will try to promote it on our own like channel here. We will be putting the link on the website with this uh, replay. And we would love to have you on for that one also. Thank we will so only much. talk about the YouTube channel. <laughs> it was wonderful having you. Nice, I'll talk nice about thing. anything Wayne wants to talk about. We're we're good. I I got you. I'm. So I'm I told you I've seen Wayne four hours talking straight, and I I think you have that caliber also. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can talk incessantly. There you go. I'll own that. It's not just talking. They're interesting. It's an interesting give and take dialogue. So that was inter exactly. very interesting to listen to. Thank you. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna end it with one and make make this a 20 second answer because it's really why Denisa versus Denisa. Was that I mean that it could be pronounced. Did you did you just take it on very early in life or what what where did you it's an old family name. Many generations ago, before the branch of my family from which the name comes moved to Texas, I'm fifth generation Texan, thank you. But they were from Kentucky and uh, they were literate, but they didn't have anyone to teach them how to pronounce the words they read. So the French Denise became Denisa and Louise became Louisa. It's literally just Kentucky by French. That makes sense. Well, Mark, why don't you take us out? Denisa, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Y'all take care. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.